The products discussed in this podcast are only available in the United States. Hello and welcome to the quarterly update podcast for the Loomis Sales Strategic Alpha Fund, where portfolio managers share their thoughts on the markets and their strategies. My name is Erica Cassell from the Texas Investment Managers, and today Matt Egan, the portfolio manager on the Loomis Strategic Alpha Fund, joins me. Welcome to the show, Matt. Thanks, Erica. And so, Matt, the the fund that we're discussing today, the Strategic Alpha Fund, actually had a very strong Q4, ending the quarter with the performance of the institutional share class up over 2%, well above most fixed income indices. Um, however, the full year return, of course, did see some volatility, along with the rest of the fixed income markets, for that matter, uh, with the same institutional class showing uh, end of year performance of just under negative 8%. As a reminder to listeners, this product does fall within the non-traditional bond Morningstar category, which is really an interesting grouping in that there is such a wide variety of investment styles and and investment goals within it. It's hard to come up uh, with apples to apples comparisons or really think of that category as one cohesive unit. Um, So with that in mind, and and as a reminder for maybe newer listeners, um, could you just give us a refresher on what the Strategic Alpha Fund is designed to do? Yeah, I'd be happy to do that. We tend to make it a tradition to do that every time where we update people or or sort of reaffirm what our strategy is designed to do because it goes to the very heart of what you said, which is this non-traditional space is a hodgepodge of different strategies. So it makes it difficult to do peer comparisons and understand, you know, what is this sector trying to do? It's trying to do a lot of different things. So we'll, we try to communicate what we're trying to do, and there are other competitors that do some a similar job of what were our, our similar goals. And so it's worth repeating our goal, and that's always been to position strategic alpha as an alternative to traditional fixed income strategy. So what do we mean by traditional fixed income? That Think of that as core, core plus, those types of strategies that are typically anchors to windward uh, for investors that are wrapped around the ag. And of course, we say alternative, but we stay in the risk-reward zip code of those traditional fixed income strategies. And we also remain in the liquid fixed income opportunity set. So this can be thought of as as a you know fixed income investment. So <clears throat> we always uh, are very clear with objectives, we try to quantify where we can. We start strategic alpha with a a risk guidance. And we've always started out with that. It's a four to six percent standard deviation, and that's through the cycle. Okay. And off that we want to earn an attractive sharp ratio. So we're thinking here a return objective of three month T bills uh, plus two to four percent over the cycle. Also, while this isn't our official return uh, objective, we do want to outperform the aggregate index over the cycle, given that we are viewed as an alternative to that. Next, we want to build in diversification. So relative to the ag and really a lot of other traditional type of strategies, we have a low correlation. So this can be a great diversifier to your broad fixed income lineup. And then lastly, we talk about managing drawdowns. And what we mean by that is it doesn't mean no drawdowns. It means managing that in line with the expectations that we've laid out, with it, which is the, the risk guidance of 4 to 6% standard deviation. And, and that turns out to be consistent with what you'd expect with traditional core and core plus strategies. And 
you know, lastly, I would say, you know, preservation of principle is important, but through the cycle. So over short periods of time, there can be drawdowns like last year. But over a longer period of time, you'll see that we have managed to preserve principle, particularly through this big lift up in interest rates since the last, say, three years. Awesome. Thank you, Matt. And thanks for that reminder. I guess in terms of those major goals that you just listed for the Strategic Alpha Fund, how do you think the product has executed over the past several years? Yeah, I I always sort of look at it versus three metrics. One is what's the performance and, and risk relative to the objectives we laid out. And then we think about those risk reward relative to broad fixed income, you know, traditional fixed income especially, and then relative to peer groups. And I think all of these categories that we look at and maintain and that our clients should is that we have to be framed in the context of the last year, which was pretty meaningful, 2022 being very challenging from a total return perspective across the board in in financial markets. But when you look at, you know, relative to our objectives from an absolute return perspective, we're falling short of the absolute excess return to T-bills modestly over, say, three to five, 10-year period. But also over those periods of times, we are at least absolute positive returning. And there's still a pickup to T-bills, again, over three, five, and 10-year period. All right. So not within the two to four percent. It's over the longer period is close to two. But because of the 2022 pull down there, it's been a little bit less than that. Now, I say that, but if you look at it versus the aggregate index and versus core and core plus, there's significant excess return versus that bogey. And if you look at over one, three, five and 10 years, it's been pretty considerable pickup to those strategies. So when I think about that, our principal preservation has been quite good over a two, three-year period, especially during this big upward tick in rates. And, you know, for example, the ag is negative uh, on an annualized basis over three years, which is pretty incredible, uh, one for the record books. Relative to peers, again, we mentioned uh, we have to be careful because this, there are a lot of different type of strategies and there are peers that are not trying to do what we're doing. Uh, there are others that are more close in terms of their objectives. But you know, the one-year period, that what you'll see is a lot of jackrabbits and a lot way down at the very bottom. Um, and I think my advice to, to people looking into this area is don't chase performance. Because what I've routinely seen is in the short run, those winners tend to be losers in the long run. Our performance over that three, five-year type of uh, and longer has been in the upper second. We like to be, or where we want to be, is in the upper second quartile uh, and, and lower first quart- quartile over time. That, I think, reflects where we would be from a risk-reward perspective relative to perhaps even riskier strategies in that category. So, And I think what you'll see is that there are a bunch of names that will group around that area, some of the well-known names that tend to be more active in the space in terms of asset gathering and investment profile. So lastly, thinking about drawdown again, and here's where I would say we have lived within expectations. And I say that because, again, our risk profile, the guidance would be 4 to 6% standard deviation. And what that means through vast majority of markets, through the vast majority of cycles, you're going to be lower than 6%. And for the 12 years that we've managed the fund, our biggest drawdowns have been generally 6% or less. Now, 
2022 was the exception because we were on the lower end of the double digit at one point. That was the lowest. That was the nadir of the drawdown. We ended the year better than that. And I would say in in terms of how I personally think about it, we drew down perhaps in the peer group a little bit more than I'd like to. But we were trying to position for the value we saw in the, the end of the second quarter in June as well as September. So we were adding risk into those markets and buying, you know, dropping our bid a little bit and buying into those markets, which paid off, you know, into the fourth quarter and for the second half in general. And I would say that stylistically thinking about Loomis, our skill and where our investors want us to be uh, taking advantage of that of the value is definitely into the spread sectors. So when the spread sector sell-offs that you saw in the market, and keep in mind like high yield was down, I don't know, like 14% or something like that at one point or more, it, it would be within the realm of expectations in terms of where we drew down relative to the peer group. And not surprisingly, on the other side of that, we tend to go ahead when, when credit starts to perform better. So, you know, I think it's important to kind of revisit that, and I'm glad you're, you're kind of bringing it up because, um, you know, 2022 is one for the record books. And I wanted to just, you know, uh, highlight that we are keeping broadly within our objectives within a very, very, very challenging market in terms of this uptick in interest rates over the past three years. Definitely. Yeah. Thank you, Matt, for, for providing that extra detail, because to your point, 2022 was an exceptionally difficult year. And and thinking about some of the, the macro factors that led to 2022 performance across the board, um, inflation really remained the key driver of a lot of that market malaise. And although we did start to see some relief as we ended the year, um, it still seems like we have a ways to go. To your team, what do you think is the likely course for inflation from here and thus likely the path of the Fed? I've become more and more convinced that inflation has peaked um, for this cycle. Okay, So I think inflation is has tailwinds on a structural basis that will show themselves on a cyclical basis going forward, Okay, which is very different than what we had seen for the 40 years leading up to this period of time. So, you know, it sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth when I say inflation's peak, but I think inflation is sticky, okay? It's, th- those two statements can coexist. <laughs> so what we're seeing is a decline in the pandemic-related supply chain problems, the goods, um, you know, that, that the durable goods and, and all of the, you know, the automobile and, and things like that were driving up inflation. That's has clearly rolled over. And we're actually seeing it bleed into the services area where, you know, it's starting to come off of its peak. So the U.S., I think inflation with a lag is going to continue to decline through the end of this year and maybe into the following year. The question is, where does it end up? Okay. I think that inflation is going to run hotter than 2%, which is the Fed's target. Uh, more often than not, and, and there's potential for it to raise its head again once this cycle and this economic weakness kind of lifts itself. So where does this leave us? I think that in the near term, the Fed is almost done with its rate hike cycle in conjunction with that. And I think the Fed will get somewhere around a 5% terminal rate sometime in the beginning part of this year. It could be as high as 5.5%. A lot of that is going to depend on, on labor. So that I'm not going to quibble with in terms of what's priced in the market. It's roughly pricing at about 5% terminal rate. Where I have more of an exception is what's priced into the long end of the curve, 
because there, if you look out and you look what's pricing for inflation down the, the uh, road, the market sees a quick fall, meaning within the next year or so, for inflation to get back closer to 2%. And that's where we have the biggest you know, concern that that might be different. How big a concern is this? Well, I think right now we're in a trading range between 3 and 4% for the, this cycle. So because of these tailwinds, the Fed is most likely going to go on a pause. Maybe it cuts rates back into this year, maybe one or two rate cuts. But more likely, the underpinnings or the sort of the structural inflation is going to keep the Fed at a higher level than we've, we've realized in the past in terms of the cycle. And then I think the cycle reemerges with a lag of one or two years or so. And so I think you'll see potentially higher highs and higher lows for inflation down the pike. What's leading to that? And I'll, I, they're what I call the four Ds, okay? So I'm trying to make this easy to, to remember uh, and think about. One is demographics, and that has to do with the working age population shrinking globally on in the industrial world, industrialized world. That leads to uh, tightness in labor and wages going higher. In cycles. The other D is deglobalization. We've talked a lot about that. The third D is decarbonization. Whether you agree with climate change or not, there's going to be a lot of spending, both in the carbon based area and in decarbonization area for energy security. And then the last thing, which is very, very important, is deficits, fiscal deficits by governments around the world. So those are the structural elements that are going to keep the Fed on, on its back heels over the next you know, several years or probably next decade. Great. And as far as what you're keeping an eye on for portfolio construction, your process begins with taking that top-down macro view of the marketplace. Um, and the last time we were together, you maintained that we were we remained in the late expansion phase of the credit cycle. A lot of investors believe that Fed action, if it hasn't already, will push us into a recession. Have the, the growth concerns that have popped up changed where you think we are in the credit cycle today? So I've said, and I, I still think this is true, we're clinging on to late cycle economics, if you look at the data. But I do, our view is that a downturn of sorts will arrive. And in fact, in many ways, the economy has already decelerated a lot. And I actually think, though, it's going to hold up better than the doom, the doom and gloom camp out there. What do I mean by that? I think that GDP has the potential to grow less than trend growth which for the U.S. is about one three quarters, okay? I think we're going to be running closer to zero plus minus. You know, the minus, though, in any given quarter or, you know, through, through the cycle is going to be pretty small, less than 1%. And the reason I think that is because the labor markets are still pretty resilient. Consumers are in good shape in the United States. We've already gone through a big inventory recycle, uh, uh, cycle, meaning since March of last year, there's been inventory destocking, uh, which is quite, and had that had nothing to do with the Fed. That was related to misbuying at the end of the pandemic, coming out of the the lockdowns. Um, so you, the things that would normally drive you really far down are just they're just not there. A lot of people worry about the housing market. I don't particularly worry about the housing market uh, because there's lack of supply there. There's not a lot of uh, foreclosures and things like that. Will it be soft? Yeah, but guess what? It's been soft for the last few quarters already. And we, you know, so 
you know, I, and that's another reason why I think the Fed can't really loosen up too much here, uh, because underneath the hood, things are not that bad. Now, unemployment's a key factor, right? And uh, we got a latest print on that, and the data shows, you know, that job market remains pretty healthy. Unemployment's still at a very low level. The participation rate is not moving up as well as the Fed would otherwise like. And, um, you know, while the job gains have, have uh, come down, we're still running over 200,000 200, per month on a, you know, if you look at a three-month rolling average, six-month rolling average, across household, establishment data, the ADP data, it's all kind of confirming the same thing. That data would have to get below like 75,000 per month to drive the unemployment rate higher. So like we're a long way from running to like a four and a half or five percent unemployment rate. Could we get there? Sure. It might take the Fed doing even more for us to get there. So it's not the end of the world, but I do think we're going into a recession. And you got to keep that in mind from a credit perspective and, and how you're investing. Great. Thank you, Matt. And so one last one last look at 2022 before we put that behind us. But when we do speak about attribution for strategic alpha, we often break it down into three main buckets of credit curve and currency. Speaking in those terms, can you just talk about what the major drivers of return for the fund were through the fourth quarter and maybe just very briefly again throughout 2022? Yeah. So last year, the best decision we made was keeping our duration very low. We were sub two years We've since raised that to above two, it's like two and a half years, which is kind of right in the middle of the range. We tend to run like between zero to five years. So we were lower than we were typically uh, be, and now we're you know moving up to kind of like the middle part of where we, we've been in the past. We've been as high as five. Um, and that just reflected when, when we saw a yield shoot up to about 4%. So, but, you know, you, I, I say that was a, our duration decision was good, but we couldn't have gotten short enough. I mean, if ultimately we would have been like in cash or, or taking it down to zero, or some people say, why didn't you short? Uh, it's a little bit tough when you've got Ukraine and the war and all these other factors where, you know, you potentially your your one news line uh, headline away from um, seeing treasuries rally uh, significantly. So we were trying to balance all those risk factors. So I'd say that was um, a good decision. Where the and this was really through June of last year, and it, it post the Ukraine war, you know, credit spreads just gapped out because inflation was still escalating. The Fed was coming in harder, and and spreads just could not contain that uh, those risk factors. So spreads widened out. Now we felt they widened out too far, so we did a couple of things, and we talked about this in May uh, around that time. Given the risk kind of changed under our feet, and the cycle accelerated, right? Because we were, a, a year ago this time, we were like, oh, we have a long time to go in the expansion. It's okay. Uh, don't worry about uh, taking, uh, sneaking out there on risk a little bit more. And then the Ukraine war hit, and then inflation became more, um, you know, uh, bubbly, and the Fed came in and did their thing. Then we said, okay, the, what, what all that meant was that the downturn that was way out in the future before now has all of a sudden come in way, way, way faster, which, again, it accelerated the cycle that's already been really, really quick as it, as it was. And so what we did is we basically had a do double barrel, what I call it at the time, a, a pull-to-par strategy, which meant we were double-barreled short duration, both spreads 
and duration. And so we were already short duration, so we had that uh, going in our favor. What we did is we pulled in our spread duration while keeping the same notional amount. We just took off chips off the table. That enabled us to buy in June and take advantage of the big sell-off in June and again in September. And so now we have a portfolio that's kind of walked up in terms of the higher level of yields and made some gains from those low prints where the market got too worried about the the downturn and spreads rose too wide. And then on the specific item list, we saw some very, very good dislocation in specific items. And I think, so it's sort of like a tale of two markets. There was the first half and the adjustments we made led to a really good second half for us and a good setup for 2023, I think. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, Looking ahead to 2023, how would you say, if at all, you're, you've started to change or approach positioning the portfolio as we move into the new year? And do you think a strategy with this type of flexibility and, and risk profile would be a good spot to be in the new year? Yeah, I think you know uh, this, this product can, um, it can invest through a lot of different types of markets. And I think for what we see, which is cautiously optimistic, uh, but you know needing to take in a couple of factors. One is is you know, we need to see some more prints on inflation still. We need to see more prints on, on the job market to get uh, an all a, a really good all-clear signal that inflation is, is under wraps here. That should be the way to lean, uh, you know, in other words, that inflation's peak, but, you know, there's still it's still not all clear. Um, so we're going to maintain – now, we've walked out our duration, and I'm a better um, buyer of long end of the treasure market up around 4 4.5% on the long end. It got there for a hot minute and then kind of pulled back. Uh, but we did increase our duration over the course of the year. Now we're running closer to like a two-and-a-half-year duration, something like that, maybe a little bit shy of that. Uh, so we're extending into that. And then um, the other thing is this portfolio now is yield, the yield to maturity. I want to be very clear here. So when I, as a portfolio manager, pull the report out and I see what is the yield of this portfolio, it's running at 7%, right? So it's got a two, two and a half year duration with a 7% yield. Um, and we're getting that yield uh, in a way in which it's a quality barbell. Okay. So on the on one end of the barbell, on the shorter end of the, of the barbell, from a maturity perspective and a higher quality perspective, we're in about 15 to 20% reserves. So those are very high quality corporates, three years and in, and T-bills, essentially yielding over 4%. We're getting a very nice yield for being in that part of the market and keeping some optionality in terms of preservation of dry powder and being able to buy into uh, what we see coming in terms of the downturn and the, and the volatility that can occur when the Fed is kind of close to the end of its, um, its cycle, interest rate cycle. On the other end, we're kind of in the middle range, triple B and double B category, where it's like investment grade corporate triple B, high yield double B mostly, uh, we're in this structured market, which still remains sort of the biggest component of our portfolio, over 25%. Um, all of that being kind of five-year and in, still kind of keeping a, a, a low spread duration, so reducing the risk through the maturity side of the spread. And then we're picking our spots within those areas in terms of specific uh, um, 
you know, investments where we think they're they're mispriced in the marketplace. So I think you've got a nice sort of average quality that's in the sort of triple B average quality portfolio with a low duration and a relatively high yield that um, now when you compare this to last year, right? So last year we're coming into this to the 2022 with a much, much lower yield, all right? And like all fixed income instruments, especially this one with 7%, now you think, okay, let's say if somebody's worried about, because I've had people like, are you worried about yields going up? I said, you know, I wouldn't be surprised. Yields could be up 100 basis points from here in the long end, okay? Maybe not the short end, but the long end, certainly. Um, okay, let's just say, or spreads could widen out because we're, we'll talk a little bit about the credit markets, but let's say spreads widen out. One of those two factors could drive the yield of the this portfolio out. Let's forget about what it does to everything else. But let's say this portfolio goes up 100 basis points. So it would be 8% at the end of the year. What would be the return? Well, it's a two, two and a half year duration. So every 100 basis points is roughly a two, two and a half percent hit to principal capital return. Now you're earning a 7% coupon. Now, even if that happens, you're sitting with a positive return. So that's something we think yield and carry wins in this environment. If you can build a portfolio like this, it's going to be able to handle a lot of additional um, you know, yield increases if they occur from either one of those factors. Um, and if it does, we have a lot of dry powder to buy into that as well. So, um, so I think it's actually, um, you know, very well positioned and certainly better than even last year because now that yield, that bond math is working in your favor. Absolutely. No, thanks for that explanation. And you mentioned right at the end there, you know, you're maintaining a decent amount of, of dry powder within the portfolio at this point. Just from a, from a high level looking out, um, are you and the team seeing any particular areas where there could be opportunity on the horizon or any risks that you're keeping an eye on in particular? Well, um, let's focus on the opportunities. And, and I think we are still in the credit market, still U.S. centric. OK, so uh, U.S. still has the best underlying economics that we see out there uh, in the next six months and even in the next year or so. Um, and when we look at the spreads, a lot of people say, well, you know, are you getting enough spread? Because this, yields have gone up, but spreads are not at the highest level, particularly if you were expecting a recession or a downturn. And we acknowledge that. We know that that's, that's true. But I would also, and I've talked about this a lot, is given the, the nature of this last cycle, which was exceptionally fast, uh, and given the underlying solid fundamentals in most of corporate America, your losses are also going to be much, much lower than they have in other, you know, big wipeouts that you've seen in the credit markets, like in 15, during the energy bust, you know, going back to TMT, you know, those periods, you know, you're going to go up to six, seven, eight, nine percent default rates, for example, in high yield. We don't think you get anywhere close to that. So your losses are going to be lower. So even though your spread is lower, that doesn't necessarily mean that there's no value in the market. And in fact, I'll just take high yield because, you know, it's like the canary in the coal mine, right? High yield spreads have been running somewhere around 450 at the low end since, you know, May or something like that to just about 600 on the wide end. 
Now, some people say that should go to 850. Well, I said, if it goes there, it's even, it'd be a very cheap market. But I'm a better buyer out at that wire end of that trading range, say six, 650. Uh, and I'm a better sort of hedger of risk at this 450 level. So right now, we're on the tighter end of that cycle. Why is that? Because people are coming back to the market. There hasn't been any issuance in the, in the U.S. credit markets, and everybody has money to put to work, and they're chasing things. So we, you know, we take a step back. And I've got uh, a bit of a hedge on to kind of reduce or tamp down some of the credit risk because I do think a downturn's coming, and I think the appropriate price is something north of, say, low fours, 400 uh, for high yield. Are you going to lose money in high yield at 400? Probably not. But are you going to get rewarded for the risk? I, you know, I think that's a tougher call. So we'll take it down and you know move it up. Underneath the hood, we've got about 20% in the high yield, but we've hedged back some of that for a net position that's, I don't know, something like uh, you know, 10 12%, I think closer to 12%. So I think credit is is good in the investment grade, and and people ask me, do you like investment grade or high yield? I, I like both. I like the double B and triple B portions. That is the best risk reward out there going. Um, I also think Securitize remains exceptionally um, interesting for the same reasons. It's short, coming in five years, and um, you know. You can get north of easily north of five six percent yields in that space for good quality stuff. Uh, one area that I've I've talked about and that I'm still um, you know think there's going to be some excesses that will be revealed and I think more and more people are coming to the realization that's in bank loans. I think it's going to be an excellent opportunity, but we've got to wait for the you know the reality of the troubles that they're facing uh, are going to be in there. And I would say CLOs are kind of tied at the hip with that market. So, you know, we're waiting to go down in, in tranches in that part of uh, of the market, although I think, like, the AAA segment is an area that I think is a, is a decent buy. Um, and then other than that, we're, you know, when I look uh, outside the U.S., um, I, you know, I think China is going to come back for the second half and surprise people on economic strength. Um and I think that's going to be important in terms of global GDP and sort of set the pace for EM assets and non-dollar assets. Uh, I think that we're going to keep it our, our eye on. Uh, the other developed markets like uh, Europe and uh, you know Japan and other places like that, there's still not enough yield, and they're just the the economies are just not as resilient um, as some of the other places that we're that we see. Great. Thank you so much, Matt. And and thanks for diving into credit in particular. I think that's been on a lot of investors' minds with that sense that with recession fears, we're going to see a, a major correction in spreads and, and that credit will be the next shoe to drop in fixed income. And I guess you, you touched on that a little bit, but specifically, again, on credit, do you think that a correction is likely this year? I think people are going to be surprised at how resilient credit remains. So I know I've talked to a lot of investors and they say, yeah, I really want to buy, but I'm waiting for higher spreads. And I said, well, you might be waiting a long time. You might be waiting for the next cycle. Now, notwithstanding the kind of ranges that I'm talking about. And there's a, so the re, the underpin, the underpinning, uh, the pillars of that is one of the credit fundamentals in the U.S. are pretty darn good. Um, you know, they came into this cycle at exceptionally strong levels uh, in the investment grade in the U.S. high yield market, for example. Um, the other thing is that 
we haven't seen in the past uh, in a non-distressed market, which I would define this as non-distressed by a large uh, shot, uh, is that there are a lot of discount corporate bonds in the market right now. This is true for investment grade. In fact, if you look at the investment grade index, I haven't looked at it recently, but I, I pulled up the chart and said, what is the average dollar price of the investment grade corporate market? It was something like, I don't know, it was sub 90, just under $90. And you have to go back to like the 1980s, like when yields were very high and there was a big, you know, increase in yields, you know, during the bulk years to get that kind of discount in investment grade. Uh, you know, again, in a non-distressed market. So why is that important? When bonds go down, uh, you know, think about what you're getting paid for in terms of spread. You're getting paid for the potential for losses. And what does that mean? If you you know you're getting a lot of people think of losses in bond terms like well if I lose a hundred cents if I don't get that money back I get a discount I get a recovery in high yield it's like forty cents in the dollar for investment grade they don't really default but if they did it would be a much higher uh, recovery uh, so you're getting paid partly for that um, you know that loss you could take from par but if the bonds are already trading at a discount theoretically you should earn a less less of a spread for that. And and that is true in the marketplace. If you see how bonds that, you know, if you look at one company that has a par-based bond, same maturity as one that has a discount, you'll see the difference in the spread. So imagine the whole market is trading like that. Then over time, uh, you would expect the spread and the, the peak of that spread to be lower relative to, to a, something that was trading at a par-based market. That just makes intuitive sense. And it's one of the key reasons that I think people are missing the fact that you probably aren't going to get out to like high yield like at 850. Um, and one of the reasons you get out to 850 is you start at par and it requires that much spread to get you down to like 60 cents of the dollar for a bond, if not more. So, um, you know, it's a combination of the really good fundamentals and it's a combination of that and um, – strong technicals related to the dollar price side. And that strong technicals really the fact that there's just not a lot of issuance in the market right now. And there's a lot of people looking out there and saying, I want to buy it at the right price. So when when the spreads do get like up to high yield at 600, everybody all of a sudden is coming into the market and wants to buy. But there aren't a lot of bonds to buy at that point in time. So I think all of these factors kind of show that, um, in my opinion, it would be really hard for investors to try to time like some sort of big peak spread events. The caveat, I guess, would, you know, what would kind of change my mind? I mentioned bank loans. Like if bank loans have a big wipeout, it's going to bring credit down, including high yield and maybe even the investment rate space. Uh, so, you know, that's, that's the one caveat, but I think that would be um, a really good buying opportunity if it were to occur. And that's something like I don't know how big that will be, and I don't I don't know what the timing of that will be. Um, it could be the next 18 months or so, but it may not happen, right? So that's something that um, I don't know if it's worth waiting for. I think what if you buy investment grade and U.S. high yield, and that and you leave some room for a potential buy for that space if it does blow up. So great, yep. something to keep in mind. Yeah, I yeah. think it's you know we're always looking for opportunities, and we definitely are doing the work on that space right now. 
and we know where the opportunities are going to be. It's it, it may not be dissimilar. I don't, you know, it's not going to be the subprime price. I do not want people, uh, listeners, to think, oh, he thinks it's, it's not going to be anything like that. But the setup for, and we took a good advantage of the subprime crisis, you know, back uh, post the GFC. There'll be some uh, similarity in ter- terms of how we attack that space because there's going to be a rating vacuum in in that area. And I'll, so what? So maybe worth a couple of additional comments we had just on bank loans. The bank loan market is not set up to have any triple C's in it because there are not natural buyers of triple C's in the bank loan market, just like there weren't natural subprime triple C buyers. So um, the reason for that is that CLO operators have to or tend to not want to buy those in their structures. They don't work in their structures. So you'll see that a lot of the bank loan universe is still not rated triple C. There's going to be a big chunk that goes from single B to triple C, and those names are going to be divorced of a natural buyer. So it's going to take opportunistic buyers to step in, sort through those investments, because there's going to be a price you know, discovery where they just gap down on no, um, no buyers. That's where I think the opportunity set is going to be, and that's very similar to what happened during the subprime. So if you... So if you have uh, you know you have some flexibility as an investor to take advantage of those um, dislocations, I think that's where the opportunity is going to be. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for the additional yeah. context. And and again, I think such a great perspective to keep in mind as we move into uh, the new year. So Matt, I want to thank you again for for joining and for your time today. Um, and for the listeners, if you'd like to learn more about the Strategic Alpha Fund and about how Matt and his team run the strategies, please feel free to reach out to your Natixis wholesaler or visit us on our website at im.natixis.com. Important information. Standard performance as a percentage for Luma Sales Strategic Alpha Fund as of December 31st, 2022. Class A at NAV, three months, 2.14, year to date, minus 8.29, one year, minus 8.29, three years, 0.64, five years, 1.17, 10 years, 1.69. Class A with 4.25% maximum sales charge, three months, minus 2.17, year to date, minus 12.20, one year, minus 12.20, three years, minus 0.80, five years, 0.30, 10 years, 1.25, class Y, three months, 2.22, year to date, minus 7.97, one year, minus 7.97, three years, 0.91, five years, 1.43, 10 years, 1.95, ISP of a three month treasury bill index, three months, 0.84, year to date, 1.46, one year, 1.46, three years, 0.72, five years, 1.26, 10 years, 0.76, ISP of a three-month treasury bill index plus 300 basis points three months, 1.56, year to date, 4.44, one year, 4.44, three years, 3.70, five years, 4.24, 10 years, 3.75, 30-day SEC yield, Y, subsidized is 5.48%, 30-day SEC yield, Y, unsubsidized is 5.47%, performance data listed represents past performance and is no guarantee of, and not necessarily indicative of, future results, total return and value will vary, and you may have a gain or loss when shares are sold, current performance may be lower or higher than quoted, for most recent month-end performance, visit im.natixis.com, performance for other share classes will be greater or less based on differences in fees and sales charges, performance for periods less than one year is cumulative, not annualized, returns reflect changes in share price and reinvestment of dividends and capital gains, if 
Penny. Top 10 Holdings for the Luma Sales Strategic Alpha Fund as of December 31, 2022. U.S. Treasury Note 1.375% August 31, 2023. 3.07% of Portfolio. Republic of South Africa Government Bond. 1.86% of Portfolio. CCO Holdings LLC CCO Holdings Capital Court. 1.41% of Portfolio. Rocket Mortgage LLC Rocket Mortgage Co-Issuer, Inc. 1.16% of Portfolio. Over Technologies, Inc. 1.10% of Portfolio. U.S. Treasury Note 1.25% July 30. 2023, 1.06% of Portfolio, Charter Communications Operating LLC Charter Communications Operating Capital Court, 0.85% of Portfolio, Morgan Stanley, 0.82% of Portfolio, CSC Holdings LLC, 0.79% of Portfolio, JP Morgan Chase & Company, 0.73% of Portfolio, the portfolio is actively managed and holdings are subject to change, there is no guarantee the fund continues to invest in the securities referenced, gross expense ratio 0.97%, class A share, 0.7%, 2%, class Y share, net expense ratio 0.97%, class A share, 0.72%, class Y share, as of the most recent prospectus, the investment advisor has contractually agreed to waive fees and or reimburse expenses, with certain exceptions once the expense cap of the fund has been exceeded, this arrangement is set to expire on April 30, 2023, when an expense cap has not been exceeded, the gross and net expense ratios may be the same, the 30-day SEC yield is a standardized calculation, calculated by dividing the net investment income per share for the 30-day period by the maximum offering price per share at the end of the period and annualizing the result. Unsubsidized 30-day SEC yield is calculated using the gross expenses of the fund. Gross expenses do not include any fee waivers or reimbursement. A subsidized 30-day SEC yield reflects the effect of fee waivers and expense reimbursements. The SEC yield is not based upon distributions of the fund and actual income distributions may be higher or lower than the 30-day SEC yield amounts. During periods of unusual market conditions, the fund's 30-day SEC yield amounts may be materially higher or lower than its actual income distributions. Diversification does not guarantee a profit or protect against a loss. This material is provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment advice. There can be no assurance that developments will transpire as forecasted. Actual results may vary. The views and opinions expressed are as of January 9, 2023 and may change based on market and other conditions. Luma Sales Strategy Alpha Fund Risks Fixed income securities may carry one or more of the following risks. Credit, interest rate, as interest rates rise bond prices usually fall, inflation and liquidity, below investment grade fixed income securities may be subject to greater risks, including the risk of default, than other fixed income securities, currency exchange rates between the US dollar and foreign currencies may cause the value of the fund's investments to decline, derivatives involve risk of loss and may entail additional risks, because derivatives depend on the performance of an underlying asset, they can be highly volatile and are subject to market and credit risks, foreign and emerging market securities may be subject to greater political, economic, environmental, credit, currency and information risks. Foreign securities may be subject to higher volatility than U.S. securities, due to varying degrees of regulation and limited liquidity. These risks are magnified in emerging markets. Mortgage-related and asset-backed securities are subject to the risks of the mortgages and assets underlying the securities. Other related risks include prepayment risk, which is the risk that the securities may be prepaid, potentially resulting in the reinvestment of the prepaid amounts into securities with lower yields. Commodity-related investments, including derivatives, may be affected by a number of factors including commodity prices, world events, import controls, and economic conditions and therefore may involve substantial risk of loss. Non-diversified funds invest a greater portion of assets in fewer securities and therefore may be more vulnerable to adverse changes in the market. Short exposures using derivatives may present various risks. If the value of the asset, asset class or index on which the fund holds short investment exposure increases, the fund will incur a loss. The potential risk of loss from a short exposure is theoretically unlimited, and there can be no assurance that securities necessary to cover a short position will be available for purchase. We believe
believe the information, including that obtained from outside sources, to be correct, but we cannot guarantee its accuracy. Before investing, consider the fund's investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit im.natixis.com or call 800-862-4863 for a prospectus or a summary prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully. Natixis Distribution, LLC is a limited-purpose broker-dealer and the distributor of various registered investment companies for which advisory services are provided by affiliates of Natixis Investment Managers. Natixis Distribution, LLC, Fund Distributor, Member FINRA, SIPC, and Loomis, Sales and Company, LP are affiliated, at tracks, 217-2184-211, expiration date, March 31, 2023, POD 07, December, 2022.